when Christians talk about inspiration, they are not saying that words are only inspired on the first copy, but also on all subsequent copies that contain the same words. It's the words that are given by God, not the physical manuscript. So God doesn't specifically inspire papyrus and leather. God breathes words. And so therefore, if you don't have the original papyrus or leather that they were written on, you really don't care. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Peter Williams. Peter serves as the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge, a research institution dedicated to developing Bible literacy in the church and beyond. He's also the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project, a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee, and the author of many articles and books, including Can We Trust the Gospels with Crossway? Today, Peter answers a crucial question. Can we really trust the New Testament Gospels? We discuss what it means that the Bible is inspired, why we can have confidence that our modern English Bibles are consistent with the original manuscripts, and how we should approach apparent contradictions in the New Testament. Let's get started. Peter Williams, thank you for joining us on the Crossway Podcast. It's great to be with you. So you you did your PhD at the University of Cambridge. Yes. And you're a member of the the ESV Translation Committee. You currently serve as principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge. And so I think all those things combined and many other things that you've done, uh, pretty safe to say that you've devoted your, really your entire professional career to studying the Bible. One of the, the main arguments that we often hear against the reliability of the Bible as a whole, but uh, in particular the New Testament and what it teaches us about Jesus and the gospel, is that we don't have the original documents. And I want to read a little quote here from Bar Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, and just hear how you would sort of approach responding to something like this. Uh, In the book, he writes, it's one thing to say that the originals were inspired, but the reality is that we don't have the originals. So saying that they were inspired doesn't help me much unless I can reconstruct them. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. How would you respond to that kind of uh, uh, critique of our confidence? Yeah, well, it, it does make me laugh, you know, and, and some versions, of course, it's copies of copies of copies, uh, as he, he says this. So um, really, the idea, um, if people say, you know, the originals were inspired, they may not be using very useful language, uh, because when Christians believe uh, that God spoke, God gave words, it's not that they believe that God gave words and those words are only um, God-given on the original copy. If someone makes a, let's say God gives the verbal sequence, in the beginning was the word. Uh, so from John 1.1. 1, 1. It doesn't become less God-breathed when someone makes a copy of that, or when it's a second or third or fourth generation copy of it. And so what we've got to recognize is that the reason we have any access to classical literature at all Uh, from the past is because it was a copying society there were copyists there were people who would transmit things and so what airman seems to be doing is making a presumption that something has not survived 
which is really quite absurd. Um, we rely on our mobile phones and our computers uh, to pass on information from around the world, and we receive copies of copies of things. Um, so even as we're uh, talking over the internet right now, uh, how many times does my uh, voice gets copied before it gets to you. Well, it, it's it's more than we can count. So I think for some reason into Airman's analysis has come this idea that copying doesn't usually work or copying is really quite a suspicious activity. And that's where I'd want to say, look, actually copying can be incredibly reliable. And when Christians talk about God-breathedness or, or inspiration, they are not saying that the words are only inspired on the first copy, but also on all subsequent copies that contain the same words. It's the words that are given by God, not the physical manuscript. So God doesn't uh, specifically inspire papyrus and leather. God breathes words. That's what Christians believe. And so therefore, if you don't have the original papyrus or leather that they were written on, you really don't care because the original papyrus or leather is not more special than anyone else's papyrus hmm. or leather. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, but how would you respond to the the person who, who who replies to that? Yes, these are copies, and we, we've all acknowledged that, but copies can become corrupted. I think maybe some of us have played as kids the game of telephone where you are whispering into someone else's ear and they whisper that same message into someone else's ear. And it doesn't, sometimes it's surprising and humorous to see how quickly a message can become distorted beyond recognition. Um, how, how can we know that that hasn't happened when it comes to the Bible? Well, what we've got to remember is the game of telephone is an optimized game. It's a game which is optimized to get the message corrupted. So try and play it with three people. You'll say, well, you don't have enough to play it, play it with. We need some more. Let's, let's get 10 or 20. Uh, and then you say, well, we have to whisper the message. And you're only allowed to whisper it once. And you're only allowed to whisper it to one person. And they can only hear it from one person. And so it's only once you've actually optimized in order to get the corruption that you get the corruption but if you were to play a, a, a game without that sort of rule where someone's allowed to shout the message out loud to a, a team of a, a room full of 10 people uh, you know uh, it's not going to get corrupted like that so I'd want to say that um, in normal circumstances messages get pa passed on far better and particularly when we think about scribes it's their job to pass things on People ought to have the presumption that things are normally properly transmitted and that it's more occasional that things are not properly transmitted. Um, that seems to be justified on the basis of manuscripts when we look at whether it's the New Testament or classical works or, or other things that actually um, most copying from antiquity is, um, is valid. Uh, sometimes it's um, things can miscopy. Sometimes things can be changed. But the idea that it's somehow a rational presumption that things have not been transmitted correctly—that uh, should be your first, you know, your starting point—doesn't seem to me right. Hmm. Yeah, and you've actually done a lot of work professionally studying the habits of the scribes and the copyists who who made it their their life's work to copy scripture faithfully. Um, what would be some bits of information that you think 
it would be helpful for Christians to know about these people. We don't really think about them when we think about our Bibles, uh, but what were their lives like, and what were some of the habits that they had to help ensure accuracy? Well, I, I, I think um, when Jesus talks uh, to people, he talks to a whole group of people called scribes. Now, what, what's their job? Their job in life uh, and within the culture in Judaism is to copy things uh, c- correctly. Um, you know, that, that's, that's part, part of it. You know, the, um, it's what you need to recognize is that um, there have been people whose professional major activity has been copying. Likewise, in monasteries in the Middle Ages, people might spend some of their day gardening and doing practical work in the monastery, but what they would spend a lot of their time doing is actually copying manuscripts, and they copy them out to be, you know, as careful as, as they can. And, and so, you know, it, it's their one job. It's it's thing thing they focus on. And so I think that gives us an assurance that... Um, things are often handed down very correctly. Now, with the Old Testament, of course, we know a lot of the very specific situations that Masoretes would uh, hand down uh, manuscripts in, and they were um, extremely uh, careful. Things vary from time to time, place to place. But uh, the good thing with the New Testament is not all the copyists are in the same place. So you've got some who are in the uh, Byzantine Empire, you've got some who are in Egypt, you've got them in different places and if you have particular uh, oddities of copying that go in in one place we'll see that that won't show up in the other place so that's where um, again the variety of manuscripts we've got enables us to have quite a bit of, of confidence about um, about the text as a whole. And how many manuscripts do we have access to and how many of those are full texts of uh, books of the Bible or even testaments of the Bible, and how many are little fragments? Yes, well, I mean, it's hard to, hard to get the very precise numbers on this. So in terms of the numbers of things that might be called manuscripts, it's going to be above 5,500. But then um, we, we start getting into, into trouble about how we count things, because when we give that number, we're not counting generally things that are written on stone and uh, clay. So if someone copies out a bit of the Bible onto a bit of clay, does that get in? Uh, pottery does that get it into our list of manuscripts the answer is no and then we're dealing with things some some things which should be only a few letters and other things that are complete um, uh, copies and we don't have those um, for in equal numbers for all of the new testament so when, when we're dealing with the book of revelation we're under 300 manuscripts when we're dealing with the gospel of john we're closer to 2000 uh, so you've got to sort of uh, take a look at these as a whole but having said that of course we don't just have those New Testament manuscripts. You also have um, commentaries on uh, the New Testament. So probably five and a half thousand manuscripts of John Chrysostom, the church father, uh, who um, on different parts of um, uh, the Bible, which will have uh, quotations in. And so you, you, you can start adding up the, the overall number of, of, of manuscripts uh, that there are uh, can be quite a bit bigger, maybe 10,000 manuscripts of um, the um, Latin New Testament. Um, so it really just depends what you count. In terms of complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament, there, there aren't really that many. Um, Codex Sinaiticus from the fourth century is, is one of those. Um, but what we do have is that for any particular part, uh, such as for Paul, the Pauline letters or, or the Gospels, you know, we, we have good numbers at every point. 
Hmm. Yeah. And how does that, you mentioned maybe 5,000 is a conservative estimate for uh, true manuscripts. Um, how would that compare to other texts from the ancient world that we might all know, like the Iliad or the Odyssey or uh, things like that? Well, the Iliad and the Odyssey are doing really quite well. I mean, they're, they're amongst the you know, most famous bits of literature. And, um, you know, Homer coppers can be found in the thousands. Now, that doesn't mean you'll have thousands for every single passage in the Iliad. And also, um, there's a big gap between, let's say, if the Iliad is first uh, composed in the uh, 8th century BC, uh, and we don't have copies of it for, um, you know, uh, over half a millennium afterwards, uh, you know, th there's a substantial gap that you don't really have with the New Testament. Also, probably Homer uh, is composed in a slightly different alphabet from uh, what we have for all uh, the um, subsequent Greek um, uh, copies, which are are made in an alphabet that only really comes about at the end of the 5th century in, in, in uh, BC in Greece. So there are all sorts of uh, things like that. But what I want to say is, look, uh, I'm not trying to um, knock other pieces of literature. I more put it like this. There are some things like Tastus or, or parts of Livy, which are in, in Latin, which only survive in one manuscript. And people take that one manuscript very seriously. And so if we're prepared to have quite a bit of trust in things that only survive in a single manuscript, I think there's every reason to say we should trust things that survive in many more manuscripts, particularly when the gap is a lot less. Uh, so with Tastus, our earliest copy is the ninth century. Uh, and so if Tastus is writing early second century, you know, there's a, um, a substantial gap there. So I'd want to say that um, I more prefer the comparison with classical works uh, to, as a point of analogy to say, look, if you're prepared to trust X, then you're prepared to trust Y. And so, you know, for me, you're prepared to trust the classical works, then there's every reason to trust that we've got um, uh, the New Testament correctly handed down. That's helpful. Another common claim that's kind of thrown at Christians uh, is that we can't trust the Bible, in particular the New Testament, because of all the contradictions in the Gospels. Uh, and they can point to different stories uh, that seem to be the same story between maybe Matthew and Mark, and yet they, they differ on some key detail or uh, point. H how should we think about those supposed contradictions? Well, I mean, again, you've got to say, well, are, the, are they contradictions or are they just differences? So the fact that we have four Gospels... Um, means almost certainly there's going to be tensions between them. You could have any four narratives about any uh, uh, set of events and you'd expect them to be some sorts of tensions. So, uh, you know, I, I think that um, you ought to start with an expectation that there will be tensions, but not to see the fact that, um, let's say, in the resurrection, one uh, gospel will have an angel, another will have a man, uh, another will have two angels, another will have two men, as a contradiction so much as a difference. I mean, it's not that the uh, any of them said it was only one angel, and it's not as if a man dressed in white is not the same as an angel <laughs> um, hmm. in, in that sort of context. So I think sometimes people have, have made too much of, of, of these sorts of things. There, I mean, there's some more difficult um, cases, but I want to say um, that we would expect there to be substantial differences if we have different accounts. Um, 
but we shouldn't begin with a hermeneutic of suspicion, uh, you know, thinking these things can't be right. So would you say that as you've approached looking at all of these, and I'm sure you've, you've examined all of them, that upon careful study and reflection, none of them stand out to you as um, unexplainable? Yes. Yeah, so what I'd say is none of them, I believe, are defeaters. None of them are, are things that can't possibly be correct. And um, it's not that you can say this is necessarily the solution to this particular one. I don't like attaching myself too much to uh, particular solutions if they don't stand out. Um, it may be that it's simply we can say there are a number of possible solutions. I don't know which is correct. Yeah, one of the other things that you point to in your new book um uh, in addition to addressing some of the contradictions that we see or the supposed contradictions uh, are undesigned coincidences. And that was an interesting, interesting idea. Can you explain what you mean by undesigned coincidences and why they are helpful as we think about this? Well, it's a phrase invented by uh, John J. Blunt in the beginning of the 19th century. And really he's talking about very subtle agreements between one text and another or one passage in another, one author in another, where they supplement each other, but in such a subtle way that you can't say one was written in order to support the other. Um, so one of the examples uh, I, I give is that um, the um, in John's Gospel, you have um, Jesus turning to uh, Philip, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, asking Philip where to get bread from. Uh, you know, for, for these people, Philip and Andrew uh, get involved in the reply. Um, and it doesn't tell you why he turns to these particular disciples. Uh, but in Luke's gospel, it's told you the feeding takes place near Bethsaida. And suddenly you realize the information from Luke explains the, you know, why he approaches these particular people in John. Um, and I think that's where you get those sorts of dovetailing between um, independent narratives. Um, and that happens quite a lot in the gospel. So overall, it's it's a, a powerful argument for their truth. Because that dovetailing, you would say, helps to establish that there is a real history behind these accounts. There's a real geography that kind of ties them all together. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. I think a lot of us love the Bible. We want to study the Bible. But you've really made a career out of it. What has uh, been the driving factors in that decision? So... Um, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family, and um, for my parents, the Bible was very, very important. And so I naturally studied that, but also I had the opportunity of going to a school, a high school, where there was very good opportunity to learn Greek and Latin. And so I did that with great teachers, and that got me into the idea of doing biblical languages. And so I got to do that at university as my first degree. Uh, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic was my first degree. And so I've kept up with those sort of things ever since. So you've put a lot of this uh, study of these original biblical languages to use uh, in the pursuit of your work on textual criticism. Uh, can you briefly describe what that is and why it's important? Well, textual criticism is really about trying to uh, study the uh, manuscripts and wording of the biblical text very precisely and any changes that go on and uh, how things develop over time and trying to work out um, what the earliest form is and also know uh, how changes take place. So my angle in on that was to study translations. So early translations of the Bible, I did 
the Syriac version of the Old Testament for my PhD, and then I wrote a book on the Syriac versions of the New Testament. And um, an early translation can be like a, um, a camera shot of a particular moment uh, in history, because it's not that the translation's always correct, but it shows you how a group of translators understood the text at a particular time. Uh, mm. So that can be a very um, good thing to do. And then from that, I went on to uh, looking more at Greek manuscripts uh, and so on. So it's uh, one of those things that I think happens once, once you've got the language base, you can um, look at these things quite easily. And so when I'm asking a question about the correct understanding of a text in the Bible, one of the things I very naturally do is ask myself the question, well, how has this been understood down the ages? Um, and sometimes you find that... Um, you know, a particular um, interpretation that people have nowadays is really quite an oddity in historical terms. And so it's helpful to get that perspective from history. Are there any examples of, of bits like that where uh, your study of the history of translating a certain text or text has kind of shed new light on how to understand a passage that maybe we would be familiar with? Well, I mean, one of the things that I did with the opening of John's Gospel is simply looking at all of the manuscripts that there are and realizing that uh, none of the early um, texts, whether in, in Greek or other languages, treated the first 18 verses as a sort of separate unit, like, like a prologue. Um, that didn't come along till quite a lot later. And so it's helpful to see that. And, and then you realize as you read... Um, more about um, John chapter 1, that actually it's an unfolding opening. It's not that you can say there's an opening in the first 18 verses and then you stop opening things up. Actually, uh, you have a series of encounters with John the Baptist that run uh, through um, the entire chapter. And so um, actually thinking of, say, just the first 18 verses as a detached prologue is not very helpful. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that, as I think about my Bible, um, John's prologue, it always seems to sit right there on the front of those verses, and that does tend to influence how we approach the text. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say are some of the one or two maybe most common misconceptions about the Bible that you encounter when you talk with other Christians? I think sometimes people haven't thought through very much what, what they mean by um, uh, the Bible. They haven't necessarily thought through the history very much. Um, they haven't, often people think of the Bible as one book when they should really be thinking of it as a library, as a um, you know set of uh, 66 books that have incredible agreement amongst themselves. Uh, but there is, um, the plurality is very important. Um, hmm. But I, I think, on, on the whole, people haven't necessarily understood um, how cohesive uh, Scripture is. Um, when people read the Old Testament, they often think that things that are recorded in narrative are approved of. And so whatever Abraham does or whatever David does must be okay. And in fact, the Bible is not telling us uh, that at all. You know, often you read uh, that, um, you know, Abraham and, and David and others married multiple people, and then you're, you also see in the narrative that this worked out very badly, and that's the way the story has of mm. telling us this is a very bad idea. So I, I think that's mm. where uh, people 
are a little bit unused to thinking that Abraham can be a hero and yet nevertheless do uh, things that are quite wrong. When it comes to the issue of textual criticism, I would imagine many of our listeners are familiar with people like Bart Ehrman, and that might actually be maybe their only uh, context for hearing the term textual criticism or thinking about some of the issues related to sorting through all the different manuscripts and putting them together to understand what uh, the biblical writers really said. Uh, and and people like Ehrman have written popular books. You know, I think his most popular is Misquoting Jesus. And um, we hear some of their criticisms, uh, some of their arguments against the reliability of Scripture. Uh, and it can be a little bit a little bit disconcerting and even maybe faith-shaking for, I think, a lot of Christians, especially someone like Ehrman, who he grew up in a Christian home and attended Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College and studied uh, at Princeton and got an MDiv. It seems like he, he knows his stuff and he's kind of been in our shoes and yet was ultimately convinced that uh, God's Word isn't truly God's Word and isn't reliable. Um, was there a time in your own journey towards where you're at now when you feel like your faith was was shaken and you wondered about the trustworthiness of the Bible? Yes, and, uh, and that would have been in my early 20s, which I think is a, quite a similar time to when um, uh, Bart Ehrman was uh, losing his faith. And I think uh, that we've got to remember that, that those sort of um, times in life can be quite... Um, unsettling where people are looking through all the possibilities but it's not that um when bart turned away from the faith that he necessarily had um a really thorough grounding in evangelical faith i mean he says in misquoting jesus that he grew up in a nominal uh, christian home he encountered evangelicals and had an evangelical conversion age 16 he then uh, went to uh, Moody Bible Institute, but I, as I understand, he didn't do biblical languages when he was there. So he really only did those when he was at Wheaton. And it was uh, even while he was at Wheaton, that he be- began to have some doubts. So I'd want to say it's not that he had, you know, decades of familiarity with um, uh, evangelical things and turned away from them. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, people have conversion stories both ways. You, you, you get Plenty of atheists in China who are um, becoming Christians and plenty of people from Christian families in America who might be becoming atheists. Uh, looking at these things globally, it's not um, that uh, atheism is winning overall or agnosticism is winning overall. It's not like that. So I would want to say um, you have to look down then at particulars. And I think when it comes to particulars, um, we're able to defend our faith in, in every area. Before we get to the things that bolstered your faith and maybe restored your confidence in the Bible, uh, what were the things that were first um, unsettling to you in your 20s as you were studying these things? Well, I think it was thinking about how to fit different parts of Scripture together. Uh, because, uh, you know, you do have quite a diversity of, uh, of, of texts within Scripture. And um, so it was, I think, when you've sometimes learned to misread things, and to read more into a text than is actually there, uh, that can be a problem. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, uh, you, you, you struggle. Um, and I think also it can be that you have a false expectation uh, because you think of 
scripture as uh, something which is meant to be simple. And one of the things about scripture I think is quite clear is that parts of it are meant to be simple and parts of it are meant to be hard. I mean, clearly God could have made the book of Ezekiel far easier. Uh, uh, and so I think when you recognize that there will be difficulties, you don't see difficulties as something that necessarily uh, should undermine your confidence in, in uh, the faith at all. Yeah, and as you were studying yourself, what were those things that uh, helped you to move through uh, and past the period of doubt or uncertainty? Well, I mean, I, I think that you're certainly helped by people around you. Um, I, I was helped, and, uh, you know, there were uh, people I could ask um, uh, questions to, and then I, I think there's also... Um, reading literature, uh, people who've struggled with questions in the past, you have, have sought to give answers. And it's not that you get answers to all of your questions, it's simply that you find that some of your questions you get answers to, and so you're prepared to think, um, in principle, there are answers to questions, even questions that seemed uh, unsolvable before, you find answers and say, aha, there are some. Peter Williams, thank you so much for talking with us today. and. Uh, sharing a little bit more about the work that you do and the the great service that you're doing to the church as a whole. Thank you. That was Peter Williams on why we can trust what the Gospels teach us about Jesus. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Can We Trust the Gospels? Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.